I invite you to uh, bow your heads with me. I'm not going to kneel at this time, but uh, I'll invite you to uh, bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day again. We thank you for your uh, manifold blessings that you continually pour out upon us, and, and too often we don't even recognize but we trust because your word tells us that all our necessities are provided for. And so we thank you so much, Lord. We praise your name, uh, Lord, for uh, sustaining us, for providing work for us, as you have for, for Deb, uh, an, another client. Um, <clears throat> we praise uh, Lord for uh, praise you, Lord, for uh, uh, Kelly being able to make it to Florida safely, and we pray that you will surround her uh, with your heavenly influence, and that uh, she may come to know you better and, and have a better life there. And uh, we pray uh, especially for Jerry's friend Bob as he's searching out for truth and wanting to know about uh, uh, the prophet. And uh, we pray that you will guide and direct him into the truth and remove any uh, sources of evil influence from him so that he can see the truth and make uh, right choices. Uh, Lord, we, we lift up... Uh, uh, Michael and his situation, a job opportunity, we pray that you will guide and direct there and, and help him in the situation that he's currently in, his living conditions and stuff. And please be with Aunt Betty uh, and that uh, uh, she can gain a peace of heart in some way and see Jesus in Michael and, uh, and in us and be drawn to him. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will continue to be with uh, Keegan and his family. Uh, it sounds terrible. Uh, that there's so slow progress, and we wish that he be completely healed and to be a testimony of your miracle-working love and power. Father, I humbly ask that you will be with me as I bring a message to the congregation today. I again ask that you be with our, our broadcast and uh, the connection issues that we have. I pray that you will clear them up so that the truth will be proclaimed and uh, people will be able to, uh, to hear it. And uh, Lord... We humbly ask from our hearts that you forgive us for our sins. We want to have a clean slate and our names to remain written in the book of life. And so we pray for grace to continue to walk by faith. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus who made it all possible. So we pray this in his name. Amen. A familiar Bible description of those who uh, uh, are members of God's remnant church is found in Revelation 14.12 and it was our scripture reading for today. And uh, again, it is familiar to us, isn't it? Revelation 14.12. Revelation 14 is very familiar and includes the present truth for this day, the three angels' messages. Verse 12, in particular, <clears throat> says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's saying the steadfast endurance of the saints is this. This is what John is saying. No matter the circumstances that they find themselves in, they will keep the commandments of God because they love Him with their whole being. And it is because of this love that they have for Him, this complete trust that they have in Him, that they exercise the faith of Jesus, which is imparted to them who believe. And this, you see, is a result of sharing in His nature by being born again. By following Jesus as the Lord or spiritual head of your life, you begin to share in His character traits. In that His righteousness becomes yours. By faith. See. You become the seed of Abraham. A light to the world. You bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You're given gifts to, to become the perfect person. And give the gospel to the world by standing upon the foundation of truth. In essence, you are a member of the body of Christ and you reflect His image. That's what a saint is, isn't it? The description of here in Revelation 14, 12. 
How is this possible? (laughs) How can we who are weak, weak in the flesh, become strong enough to overcome our sins? Well, the answer is found in the Word of God. And we're going to seek it as for hidden treasure at this time. Amen? As I've said before in this great controversy between Christ and Satan. And by the way, we're continuing in our study uh, a series, This Is My Body, and it's a series defining God's church. Okay, And I've entitled uh, this particular message, His is Yours. <laughs> His is Yours. And so as I've said before in this controversy that we, we read about in Revelation 12 uh, between Christ and Satan, there are only two churches. Though the world has, uh, excuse me, the word has been used, the word church has been used to mean different things. You know, like people or buildings or denominations or you know, organizations, etc. But the Bible defines only two churches current churches too one day there will only be one again (laughs) first God's church it's currently referred to as the church militant it's the end time church it's the church militant which is made up of both faithful souls it's made up of unfaithful souls who are sometimes described by the Bible as tares or as foolish virgins, or as Laodiceans. There are some other descriptions as well. Um, but not open sinners. Okay, And that's a key. Because if you find any church that you're in, and they, they uh, uh, have open sinners within their congregation, and there's no rebuking, there's no trying to uh, you know, reach these people, you will know that that is not God's church. Because the Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit's role is to convict us of our sins. If there's no conviction of sin, is the Holy Spirit present? No. The second church the Bible describes is Satan's church. Today it is known as spiritual Babylon. And it is made up of both faithful souls. Now that sounds like, wait a minute there. But it does have faithful souls in it. The problem is those faithful souls don't know they're in Babylon, see? And it's also made up of unfaithful souls, which are open sinners. Okay? There are no tares in Satan's church. Satan has planted tares in God's church. Wouldn't do any good to have tares in Satan's church, would it? Okay? Now, all the other definitions of the church, the word church, even a building, because it either belongs to God or Satan, doesn't it? So all other definitions of the word church will fall into one of these, these two definitions. Sometimes God's church uh, families on earth are organized, and sometimes they're scattered. Sometimes both, depending on uh, where they are in the world. God's family in heaven is completely organized. But uh, his family's here not so well. Isn't that true? But there are only two churches in all creation. Only two, and they're at war. Again, Revelation 12 makes it very clear. uh, Until this war is over. Now, we've been studying what the Bible has to say in defining God's church and are looking at ten primary uh, characteristics. Again, there are more. But these are the most prominent characteristics uh, that I found uh, myself of the true church of God and all others actually will fall within these attributes or they might build upon these foundational ones. Very quickly, I'll go through them. First, uh, God's church will have the nature of Christ. It will be a, uh, uh, a membership who are born again, humanity and divinity combined. They will be born again believers other than the tares who were not planted there by God, but by Satan, see. Upward look, page 80 says, the Israel of God are those who are converted. That's a very strong statement defining who is God's church. See, 
God's church, number two, will be a spiritual house with Christ as the head. It's not going to be, it's going to be organized, but it's not going to be a man-made organizational structure with a man at the head, such as the Catholic Church and the Pope, who claims to be Christ on earth. That's not going to be it. It's not going to be a hierarchy. Again, there is proper gospel order. Uh, God's church is of the, made up of the spiritual seed of Abraham, not of Ishmael. In other words, they are going to be uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit and not of the flesh. See, that's who controls them. Uh, Abraham is uh, kept his covenant with God. He was faithful to God. Ishmael, no, he was of the flesh. So, uh, those who belong to God's church are going to be covenant-keeping, and the Sabbath throughout the Bible has been a sign of the covenant. That God is the one who sanctifies us, makes us holy. And I like to throw this in there because some people get mixed up on the 144,000. They want to argue about whether it's, it's a, that's a you know, symbolic number or if it's a literal number. Let me tell you, most of Revelation is symbolic. And if you look at the covenant and such, you'll find that 144,000 is symbolic of the spiritual seed of Abraham, not the literal seed of Ishmael, and not the literal seed of Abraham. See? Because Paul tells us, neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, bond nor free, were all saved by the blood of Jesus. See? We're not under the literal lineage of Abraham, are we? By faith in Jesus, we become heirs according to the promise that was given to Abraham. So see, anyway, I could do a whole series probably just on that, and it's sad. Uh, Fourth, uh, the church is a light that leads the way to the head, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, Fifth characteristic of the church of God, it has the gifts and it bears the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and that includes the testimony of Jesus. I had to throw that in there because some people uh, were not aware of that. And I'm going to deal with that in uh, coming uh, messages um, about the uh, gift and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, especially the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, Sixth, the stand upon the foundation of truth, especially present truth, right? Our present truth isn't that there's going to be a worldwide flood. Isn't that correct? That was Noah's present truth. It's not ours. So, present truth. Um, And what I'm going to deal with today, number seven, God's church, the members of God's church have the faith of Jesus. It's righteousness by faith. We're going to get into that in just a moment. Uh, Number eight, they'll keep the law of God. That's all a part of righteousness by faith as well. All Ten Commandments. Number nine, they'll be vibrant and living in Christ. It's going to be a true fellowship. You're not going to build up walls and and go and run to the mountains and be by yourself. Which I know some Adventists have done. This includes up through the Sunday Law crisis, friends. <laughs> We're to give a message of God even through the Sunday Law. The Sunday law is going to bring it to the attention of the whole world and we're going to share the light of the three angels' messages as to why it's happening. We can't do that if we flee the cities and run for our lives. Because we'll lose our lives. And uh, tenth, they were going to have godly love and unity. You'll find this where you find the Holy Spirit, where you find Jesus. So this is the body of Christ. This is His church. And I want to be a member of His church, don't you? I hope so. Now I want to talk to you about the faith of Jesus and how His faith can be your faith. And again, that's why I've titled this message, His is Yours. Um, And this is probably, friends, uh, the greatest issue for mankind to understand. Now there are a lot of things we need to understand, but when you start to learn about this, I think you'll recognize that This is the power of the gospel. See? This is the issue that Jesus came to this world to demonstrate to all. 
This is the issue that must be settled in our mind before probation closes or we're, sad to say, we'll be lost forever. And so, you know, I, in fact, I, I've spent, I have spent many years on this issue. In fact, if you were to look back at all my messages since becoming a pastor, you'll find that almost every worship service, I say something about it, and yet somehow there are people who don't recognize it. I've received notes. It's a, a, astonishing to me. But I do receive notes from time to time from people who said, you need to preach about righteousness by faith. And I thought to myself, you haven't been listening to what I've been preaching as that's been the theme of my born-again life and my ministry. You see, that's what the Bible's all about from Genesis to Revelation is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and how we can attain that by faith. But people don't recognize it. And I think that they're used to certain terminology. And if they don't hear the terminology uh, that they're used to, they think that... uh, you're not preaching about that subject. So just in case someone doesn't think I've, I ever preach about this issue, I'm giving you a heads up right now. That is the subject for today. I want to begin by telling you a story that I heard a long time ago that I think illustrates the lesson of righteousness by faith. Because you see, really, righteousness by faith is very simple. But we have theologians who make it difficult. But it's really very simple. There was a young boy named Tommy. And Tommy wanted something very, very badly. He wanted a wagon. He wanted a wagon so badly that he talked about it in the morning. And you know how kids who want something very badly, they talk about it in the morning, they talk about it at lunch, they talk about it at dinner time. That's all they ever talk about. And that's what Tommy was talking about. Having a wagon was all that he talked about. That's what he wanted. His grandmother heard about it. And she didn't live very close to Tommy. She lived a long ways away. And and so she wrote him a letter. And in the letter she promised him, I'm going to get you a wagon. And after reading the letter, Tommy gets the letter, he reads it. He goes running down the stairs and he announced to his mother and he announced to his father and he announced to everyone in his family, I have a wagon. His parents asked, you do? Where is it? Well, he couldn't show it to him, could he? But he said, I have it. I know that I have it. They said, what do you mean that you have it? You don't have it. He said, I have it right now. I have it. Well, how do you know that you have it? I have this letter. So I have my wagon. You know, we have a letter. It's got 66 books in it. Do we have it? I want you to realize that Tommy... Even though he didn't realize it, he understood what righteousness by faith is all about. <laughs> you see. And that's the whole concept right there. And it's really, beloved, that simple. It's so simple that a child can understand it. Jesus said in Matthew eighteen three, He said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children. Isn't that interesting? Become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The concept is very simple, isn't it? Jesus promised it to you. And if you believe it, you have it. If you've committed your life to Him, if you've accepted Him as your Lord and your Savior, Savior, you have it. Who are... God's promises too, if not to those who believe. Now you may not have anything yet to show anyone because people have accepted Jesus when they were slaves to evil habits and their whole lives have been a life of sin. They don't have anything to show others, but they have it. Just like Tommy had that wagon. 
And if you submit your life to Jesus, you're accepting two things. You're accepting two things. You accept these by faith. And faith simply means that you trust, in essence. It means that you trust it. You accept Jesus as your personal Savior from sin, and you accept Him as your, the Lord of your life. That's all. Those two things. That's it. You accept Jesus as your personal Savior from sin because why? Can you save yourself? We can't, can we? But He can save us if we trust Him. See? That's where faith comes in. If you accept Him as your personal Savior from sin and if you accept Him as the Lord of your life, you become a member of the church and will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, being organized and part of an organization is something different we'll get into later. The church is to be organized. But it does no good to be in an organization that doesn't have Christ, right? If you don't have Christ in your heart, is it going to help you to be in a church organization? No. People get mixed up on that. You become a member of the church. And when you become a member of the church, if you're faithful, you'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a promise. You may not be able to show anything when you accept Jesus, but you will in time. Tommy couldn't show his parents that wagon right then, but he will in time. Isn't that true? I've met people who were victims of all kinds of evil habits, friends, and had been the victims of those habits for years. And years and years. There was no way they could get free from that life of sin. I want to tell you as kindly as I can. You never will be able to get free from your life of sin in your own strength. If anything is impossible, that is the greatest impossibility. You will never be able to do it. The Bible says that when a person has been living a life of sin, that the sin binds them in cords. Have you ever had your hands tied tightly? You can't get out. Forget about all these spy TV shows and movies. You don't get out. Back in the the 30s in Chicago, when they gave you cement shoes, you didn't get out. You were bound. And that's what the Bible says. You're bound in cords. Proverbs 5, verses 21 to 23. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. The Lord sees all things, doesn't He? And He pondereth all His goings. His own iniquities shall take the wicked Himself, and He shall be holden with the cords of His sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of His folly He shall go astray. The Lord looks at the ways of man. He sees that man is bound as a slave. And Jesus said this. He said this in John eight thirty four. He said, Verily, verily, I say to you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. You're bound to it. Because a sinner, here in Proverbs, he's saying because a sinner refuses instruction, he is of necessity left to entangle himself more and more in the snares of sin. Doesn't it seem like it just gets worse and worse and worse? One leads to another. And the degrees get worse and worse and worse. But there is power to break the strongest cords. But the long indulgence in sin often leaves a person with no desire for salvation and no inclination to place their will on the side of Jesus. Many times a person reaches a point where they feel completely hopeless. And that's usually a place where God works the greatest of miracles. (laughs) Such a case is hopeless as long as they will not seek the help of Jesus who can save them to the uttermost. You see, that's what the promises are for. Beloved, if you realize that you're a slave to sin, maybe you've tried 
to get free a thousand times and failed. And maybe you have all but given up hope. I want to tell you that there's somebody who can set you free if you put your trust in Him. I've experienced it. I can attest to it. From your heart, all you have to do, and it has to be from your heart, say, Lord, I'm going to acknowledge you as my Savior from sin, and I'm willing to acknowledge you as the Lord of my life. It's very simple. You don't have to understand all uh, about what the theologians talk about. By the way, there are a lot of things that the theologians say that I cannot understand either. And I've been studying uh, uh, theology more than half my life. But you can be set free if you don't know anything about theology. Amen to that. If you just put your trust in Jesus and choose to follow Him. What does it mean to accept Jesus as the Lord of your life? You know, people in the United States sometimes have trouble uh, understanding that. People in the Roman Empire didn't have any trouble understanding that. Because in the Roman Empire, only one-third of the population was free. Two-thirds of the population were bondservants or slaves. A slave had no rights. A master could kill his slave and not have to go to jail. The slave had no rights. We used to have a portion of this country that was that way at one time. Jesus said the one who is practicing uh, sin is a slave of sin. And if you're going to be set free, you've got to acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of your life so He can set you free. That is a paradox in Christianity. (laughs) Really. You have to become His servant to be set free. In fact, in the Greek language, they had several words for servants. And course we understand as the language develops you develop words to express what needs to be expressed and sometimes that's called slang isn't it so in english in america we don't have many words for slaves and servants because we're not living in a slave servant type of society but in their society they had many different words for instance they had a high class servant who usually was paid wages the greek word for that was huparatus Those people were managers, but they were still servants to some boss. They had a lord over them. They were servants, but they were managers. Many of them would probably be called executives today. Then there was a lower level of a servant uh, than that. The Greek word for that is diakonos. Maybe sounds familiar. That's where we get the word deacon. Diakonos. The word deacon means servant of the church. You're not an executive. You're a servant. But then there was a lower level of a servant than that one. It was the lowest. And that is what we would call a bond servant or a slave. That was the lowest level of a servant. Now, when Paul described himself, he describes himself as a servant of Christ. And which one do you suppose he described himself as? As a high-class servant, a middle-class servant, or the lowest servant you can get. Paul described himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's the lowest level. That's lower than a deacon. Bondservant. And it's when Jesus becomes your Lord that you become His bondservant. That's when you're set free. That's the paradox, see? Remember the two things that you have to do if you want to be set free. If you want to receive righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Two things. You have to acknowledge Him as your Savior from sin. And second, you have to acknowledge Him as the Lord of your life. Your whole life. I'm just part of it. A slave wasn't just a part-time slave. Well, I'm a slave to Him four hours a day. And then I'm free. To do whatever I want. That isn't the way it works. 
you got to remember, both those things are essential. One of the biggest problems I've found in Christendom today is that there are many people who want Jesus to be their Savior from sin, but not the Lord of their life. I'm going to do my own thing, and Jesus is going to continually keep forgiving me for my sins, even though I'm doing my own thing. That's why there's so many people who have no power in their religious experience, and they can't figure out why their prayers don't get any answers. Because Jesus isn't the Lord of their life. They're their own boss. They're not obedient to the Word. You see, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, then you'll obey what He says. In fact, in Luke 6.46, Jesus asked the Jews this question. He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? doesn't make any sense. And you know, there are many Christians today whom Jesus is asking that same question. You say you're a Christian. You say you're an Adventist. You say you're a member of the remnant. You say you're following me, but you don't do what I say. That's why there are so many people who can't get free from their evil habits. They they say, Pastor Joel, you talk about righteousness by faith. And then if I put my trust in Jesus, he'll, he'll put divine power in my life, but nothing's happening. Where's this power? Remember the two things? He's got to be your Savior from sin. He's also got to be the Lord of your life. You've got to choose to follow Him. Choose to obey Him. Let's read a couple of Bible texts about that. Because the apostles made it very clear. One of the places they made it clear was the day after Pentecost. Let's look at uh, the sermon in Acts chapter 2. This was Peter preaching. Acts 2 verse 36. Peter said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified both what? Lord and Christ. That's rather specific. Peter wasn't being redundant. Now the word Christ there is Messiah. Okay? That's the Greek for Messiah. In the Hebrew, it means Savior. But He's not just Christ. He's also what else? Lord. See? He cannot be your Christ, your Savior from sin, if He is not also the Lord of your life. And I don't want you to, especially young people, don't ever forget that. Don't let anybody deceive you or trick you on that. The Apostle said this over and over again. Go down to Acts chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that do what? Obey Him. Now the apostle said Jesus is a prince. That means he's a governor. He is a ruler. He's a lord. See? And he's a savior. I want to ask you, is he that to you, friends? Is Jesus the prince in your life? Is he the lord of your life? And your savior from sin? You see, if you receive Him as your Lord and as your Savior, you have His righteousness. That's what righteousness by faith is. It's not complicated like many people think and like some theologians try to teach. The way you receive righteousness by faith is by receiving Jesus into your life. That's how you get it. You accept Him as your Savior from sin and as the Lord of your life. You choose to follow Him, to obey Him, and you will have His righteousness.
Is that complicated? The devil tries to make it complicated. I mean, just remember the story about Tommy and the wagon. When do you have righteousness? Well, as soon as Tommy got the letter in which his grandmother promised him the wagon, he had it. Because he knew his grandmother was a moral person. She didn't lie to him. He never had an experience where his grandma lied to him. He could trust. He knew that she would fulfill her word. So he knew he had it. It's the same way with you and Jesus. He's given us promises. Has Jesus ever shown himself to be untrustworthy? Then we know we got it. So beloved, is there something that Jesus is just waiting to do for you? He can't do it for you if you don't acknowledge Him as the Lord of your life and as your Savior from sin. He can't do it. And if He's the Lord of your life, you'll obey. And if you don't obey, He's not the Lord of your life. (laughs) See? No matter what profession you might make. And someone says, Pastor Joel, that's just the trouble. I try to obey and I cannot. Well, beloved... Remember what Jesus said about becoming as a little child. If you choose to receive Jesus and to obey Him, He will give you the power to do what you could not do on your own. I'm going to read you a paragraph from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. And it's just a little paragraph and it actually explains the whole subject of righteousness by faith. It explains the whole subject in just a little paragraph. Now she's commenting on this text of Scripture. It's Matthew 5 and verse 6. It's part of the Beatitudes. Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for what? They shall be filled. If you're thirsting and hungering for it, you're going to have it. Those two things. Except Jesus is your Savior from sin as the Lord of your life. See, too many people, and this is part of the righteousness by faith uh, uh, um, deception that's being taught, is that you have to do something yourself to get all cleaned up. (laughs) I'd ask my little brother, do you get all cleaned up before you take a bath? He went, no. Exactly. Jesus does the cleaning. You just got to come to Him. What did Naaman have to do? He just had to go out into the Jordan and dunk seven times, didn't he? But he did that by faith. The Lord said through the prophet, go out there and dunk seven times. You're crazy. Took him a while to understand it, didn't he? Well, I'm going to trust you. And he went out there and did it. That's the same thing here. Do we trust Jesus? Listen to this paragraph. Righteousness is holiness, likeness to God, and God is love. 1 John 4.16 It is conformity to the law of God. For, as Psalms 119.172 says, all thy commandments are righteousness. And love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13.10 Righteousness is love, and love is the light and the life of God. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving Him. So you've got to do some extrapolation here. Now let me ask you a question. Does the Bible say that God is right? Or does it say that God is wrong? It says God's right. Does the Bible say that God is holy? Righteousness is holiness. Likeness to God. This is what she's saying here. And God is love. So righteousness is love, right? 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. Righteousness is also conformity to the law of God because all of His commandments are righteousness. You see? And love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul says in Romans 13.10. So what I'm trying to do is get you to, to notice the concepts that this paragraph is putting forth. Righteousness is likeness to God. God is love. 
it is conformity to His law, and love is the fulfilling of His law. So when you're talking about righteousness or holiness or godliness or love or law-keeping, you're talking about the same thing in God's eyes. Not in the minister's eyes of today. Not in the theology of today. The sloppy agape, as Susan likes to say. And that's why people get confused. They have all these different words and people can't put them all together. Notice the words that are being put together. Righteousness is the same as holiness, which is God-likeness, and God is what? He's love. And in conformity to God's law, love is the fulfilling of the law, Paul says. That is what love really is. See? And we know, and I've taught, and hopefully you remember and know, that the commandments are the character traits of God, who is love. See? In fact, that's another problem in the Christian world today. People talk so much about love and they don't have the faintest idea of what it really is. Because you see, when they say, when I came to understand this, and I hear somebody say that Jesus nailed the commandments to the cross, I cringe because they're saying that Jesus nailed the love of God to the cross. That the love of God is dead. And when you say that the commandments are no longer binding, you're telling me that the love of God is no longer around. But that's not what the Bible says. They don't have the faintest idea of what love really is. They think it's a sentiment or a feeling. But the Bible tells us what love really is. In 1 John 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Why aren't they grievous? That means they're not, they're not difficult to fulfill. They're not burdensome. That's what that means. Well, if you really love God, you're going to keep His commandments. That's what the Bible says. If you don't keep His commandments, you don't really love Him. You see, it goes both ways. This is why Jesus said, If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. commandments. So righteousness involves keeping God's law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. It's simple, friends. But we need to explain it because we get mixed up in the words, I think. That's why it needs to be explained. But just think it through. If you love your parents, will you honor your parents? That's the fifth commandment. If you love somebody, will you kill them? No. That's the sixth commandment. If you love somebody, will you run off with their spouse? No. That's the seventh commandment. If you really love somebody, will you steal what they have? No. You may ask them to borrow it. That's what people do who love each other, right? And that's the Eighth Commandment. If you really love somebody, would you want to get what they have? Take all of it? And that's envy, isn't it? No, you wouldn't do that. That's the Tenth Commandment. Where, whether it is their, as, as was described in the Tenth Commandment, whether it was their wife or their house or anything they have, you're not going to envy it. If you really love God, would you take His name in vain and revile it? That's the third commandment. That's why the Bible says that love is the fulfilling of the law. Because if you have love in your heart and you love God supremely, you're going to keep the first four commandments. And if you love your neighbors yourself, you're going to keep the last six commandments. So that's what love is. And that's what righteousness is. See? God's commandments are righteousness. We read that in Psalm 119, verse 172. If you go back to our quote from Thoughts of the Mount of Blessings, the third sentence, look at the third sentence. It really sums up what we've been studying. Righteousness is love, and love is the light and life of God. That's simple and profound. 
Righteousness is what? It's love. And love is what? The light and glory of God. The, the life of God. That's why, friends, if you deliberately choose to break um, any part of God's law, you're deliberately choosing to separate yourself from His life, from His glory, from His light. You're deliberately choosing to separate yourself from that because righteousness is love, and love is the life and glory of God. If you deliberately choose to separate yourself from the law of God, you're deliberately choosing to separate yourself from the love of God. You're deliberately choosing to separate yourself from the life of God. Do you have life in yourself? No. We don't have any life in ourselves. We're subject to death. Jesus said there's only uh, one way that you can get life, and that is through me. You read that in John chapter 6. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving Him. Now, is that complicated? The righteousness is embodied in Christ, and we receive right, righteousness by receiving who? Jesus. I'm just emphasizing. <laughs> by receiving Jesus. It's simple, isn't it? You choose to accept Jesus as the Lord of your life and as the Savior from sin, and you receive righteousness when you receive Him. Let's look at what it does for a human being when we receive Jesus by faith. We receive Him. I'm going to go to First John here. We receive Him, and when we receive Him, we receive His righteousness at the same time. And, and here is what happens. And this happens immediately. This happens instantly. When you accept Jesus as the Lord of your life and as your Savior from sin, He does something about your past. You know, you did something wrong at some time in your life, didn't you? The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what it says in Romans 3.23. And when that happens, then we have guilt inside. Remember I was talking about guilt this morning? Well, Susan doesn't remember. She wasn't with us yet. But uh, we have guilt inside when we sin. And guilt can destroy your life. Guilt can cause depression, despair, discouragement, hopelessness until a person's life is utterly destroyed. There's no hope, see. But when you accept Jesus as the Lord of your life and as your Savior from sin, the first thing He does is He takes away all the guilt of your past. See, 1 John 1 verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son does what? Cleanseth us from all sin. It cleanses us, see. That means we're forgiven. That means all that guilt is removed. We're forgiven. We're not guilty anymore. We've been pardoned. And that's where a peace can come into your heart. I don't have that burden of guilt anymore. Now if you want a nice theological term for that, if you like big words, theologians have a big word for that, it's called justification. Most people do not know what it means, but that's the word. <laughs> it simply means you have been forgiven. Romans 5 and verse 1. Paul said, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We have been justified. That means we've been forgiven. That means we have been pardoned. Our sins have been washed away. We have been cleansed from sin through the blood of Jesus. Now let me tell you something else about this. Don't let anyone convince you that there is any other way to have your sins forgiven. Because there is not. That is the only way there is in all creation, friends. There's no other way. You can read Acts 4.12 about that. There's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. You can't be forgiven of your sins by doing penance, for example. You remember what happened to Martin Luther? 
Do you know who Martin Luther was? He was climbing up those stairs there on his knees. He was doing penance. And all of a sudden it was just like a thunderclap in his mind. The just shall live by penance. No. The just shall live by faith. And he knew what he was doing was not exercising faith. He got up. He walked back downstairs. And that was the last time he ever did penance in his life. Your guilt cannot be taken away by doing good works. That is what penance is, supposedly. Although, walking upstairs on your knees, I can't see that that's a good work. But it's doing some kind of work, see, to work off your guilt. It's impossible. Your guilt can't be taken away that way. It can't happen. Only the blood of Jesus can take your guilt away. You see, God in heaven knew that you couldn't do it. Jesus knew you couldn't do it, and that's why Jesus voluntarily offered to go to the cross and pay the price for your sin and for my sin. The first thing that happens when you come to Him and you accept Him as the Lord of your life and your Savior from sin, He takes away your guilt. You're not guilty anymore. You just have to believe it by faith, see. Tommy got the letter. He believed he had a wagon by faith in his grandmother. But the righteousness of Christ that you receive by faith involves more than the past. All some people know about the gospel is about their past. I have sinned, so I better go to confession and get my sin confessed. Now, there's nothing wrong with confessing, is there? We should confess our sins, but we need to confess them to God, right? John said in 1 John 1, 9, if you go down two more verses there, if we confess our sins, He, that's Jesus Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to confess our sins. But that uh, is not all there is to it. It involves not just the past, but it involves the present, it involves the future. Go to Romans chapter 5. You have your Bibles. Notice what Paul's talking about here. He's talking in the last uh, verses of chapter 4 about the past, about how our offenses, uh, our offenses, our sins are forgiven. That's in the past. But it involves not just the past, but it involves the present. You remember, uh, in the original writings, they weren't uh, put into books and chapters and paragraphs they all flowed together so here Paul's talking in Romans 4 about the past and we come to Romans 5 verse 2 he says by whom also we have access by faith he's speaking of Jesus into this grace wherein we stand wherein we stand if it was past tense it would have said what stood but he's saying stand. That's a present tense. The grace wherein we stand. That is right now. And he's going to talk about the future too. He says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Great words. But I want you to notice several points in the scripture. When we are forgiven, it does not just involve the past, but something also happens in the present. We stand now in grace, the grace of Jesus. The grace of God is the power of God. That's what grace is. People say, oh, what is grace? Grace is a free gift. Okay, what's the gift? Have you ever heard Christians say that? That's all, well, grace is free. It's a free gift. What is the gift? And they'll say, oh, uh, the gift is eternal life. No, that's the reward. What's the gift? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It is the power of God. That's what the gift is. Grace is the power of God. It's the character of God. God is power. 
So first He takes away our guilt, but then He makes a change in my heart and my life now. You see, unless my heart is changed, what's going to happen? It's not going to do any good to forgive me, is it? Because I'm going to do the same thing again. I'll just keep doing it unless my heart is changed. And that's what the Catholic religion is, isn't it? You can't change. God is too weak to change you. You just have to do penance uh, to keep Him from punishing you. And it'll be okay. What a terrible religion. What a terrible life. What a terrible God. But Paul says the love of God is poured out into our hearts. The heart is changed by the Holy Spirit. And he mentions that right there. Through the Holy Spirit, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. That brings a change into the heart, a change in the life. I now have something inside. This text of Scripture in Romans 5 shows that it involves not just something that was done for you by Jesus on the cross. It involves something that is done in you by the Holy Spirit in your heart. Your heart is changed. Beloved, this is so important. This is so important that Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a person is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It is impossible. You see, the Holy Spirit has to change my heart. The love of God has to be poured out into my heart. That is righteousness by faith. So remember, righteousness is love. Remember that? Love is the fulfilling of the law. The love of God has to be poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit. So I have a new heart. And what that essentially means, that means that I have new desires. I have new purposes. I want to do different things. Instead of wanting to break God's law, now I want to keep God's law. See? Instead of rebelling against Him, I want to follow Him and serve Him because I have a different heart. My heart is changed. And I want to tell you, friends, this is something Jesus told Nicodemus. He said, you can't see it. It's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the results. I've seen the results many times. You can't actually see what the Holy Spirit is doing, but you can see the consequences in the person's life, can't you? The person who was impure... The music they were listening to, the magazines they were reading, the videos they were watching, the programs they were watching, all the, the impure, let's say, maybe pornography, whatever it is that they were involved in, that comes out of their life. They don't desire it anymore. Now, you can't see what the Holy Spirit is doing in their heart, but you can see that something has changed in their life because their life is different. Before I became a Christian... I used to get in arguments all the time with my sister-in-law, my little brother's wife. She, I, I swear she just loved to argue. argue. But when I became a Christian, I was different around her. And she said to me one day, there is something different about you. You see, people will notice it. And I began to tell her, I don't do those things anymore. And eventually, we were baptized on the same day, along with my mother. You see, people will see that there's a change, but they don't see the change that's happening. They can't read your heart. The person who is impure becomes pure. Their language changes. Have you ever noticed that? I've seen that over and over. Language changes. They have a different vocabulary. They're not telling dirty jokes anymore. Their speech becomes pure. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is working in their heart and pouring the love of God into their heart. That is righteousness. It's, it's changing the way that they think and the way they talk and the way they act. And people who used to be hard and rough and sharp, they become gentle. Have you noticed it? That was one of the characteristics of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11 Verse 20 to 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, 
For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. His law is light. His righteousness is light, because it becomes yours. His is yours. And these changes in heart that is happening through the Holy Spirit is righteousness by faith, you see. I want to read you something from Testimonies Testimonies of Sexual Behavior. Section 7, Counsels to People with Moral Problems, page 134. She says, Righteousness of Christ imputed to man means holiness, uprightness, purity. Unless Christ's righteousness was imputed to us, we could not have acceptable repentance. The righteousness dwelling in us by faith consists of love, forbearance, meekness, and all the Christian virtues. Here the righteousness of Christ is laid hold of and becomes a part of our being. All who have this righteousness will work the works of God. You receive it. You see, it changes your life. You talk different. You think different. You act different. Your life starts to come into harmony with God's Word and especially with His law because that, the, His law is the character traits of, his, of God. You become more and more like Him. You see, the Christian religion is not just improving on your old life. That's not what it is. It does, it's not just making you a better person. That's not what it's about. Your old life is not worth improving. That's what you have to get right in your mind. Jesus said, I'll give you a new heart, a complete transformation in your character. You'll live a new life. You'll have a new heart. You'll have a new spirit. You'll live a new life. It's not an improvement on the old one. You're going to be a uh, living a different one because you have a different heart. You have different desires. That old man, the Bible refers to it as, is put to death. And the new man is alive. So the result, the result is going to be what? It's going to be different speech, different actions, different thoughts even. And if you'll put your trust in me, Jesus says, I'll give it to you. Remember the Two requirements. If you acknowledge Jesus as your Savior from sin and you are willing for Him to be the Lord of your life, He has promised to give you His righteousness. The past will be forgiven. You'll not be guilty anymore. And in the present, you'll receive a new heart, a new character, a new spirit, a new mind. That has to happen if you're going to become a member of the church and enter the kingdom of heaven. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5-7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And I'm going to close with this. I've shared this with you before in this series. It's from Christ's Object Lessons, page 311, and it's so powerful. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with His heart. The will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of His righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, He sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but His own robe of righteousness Righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. And I will add, it is the love of God. We live His life. His is yours. This is an experience that happens in your life every day in the morning when you get up. You start making choices. Is Jesus going to be the Lord of your life today? Do you want this experience Do you want the righteousness of Christ to be in your heart and in your life through the Holy Spirit? Do you want this to happen to you? I do. If you do, I invite you to pray with me now. Let's ask the Lord to work this miracle out in our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for Jesus. We thank you for the promises that you've you've given to each and every one of us through Him. And Father, it is our will at this time, right now, that you will forgive us our sins. They are many. And we ask, Lord, 
we ask Jesus to be our Savior from sin. We ask Jesus to be the Lord of our life right now and forevermore. May we remain always faithful. Lord, continue to be with us throughout the rest of this day and the coming days ahead that we may be found faithful when you return. We thank you for the Sabbath day and for the rest we receive spiritually and physically. And we praise your holy name for keeping your word, though we too often fail to keep ours. In Jesus' name we pray.